Welcome to the Books and Bites podcast. Each month, we bring you book recommendations and discuss the bites and beverages to pair with them. I'm here with my co-hosts, Michael Cunningham and Adam Wheeler. Hello. Also joining us today is adult outreach librarian, Perry Conley. Hi there. Today, we're talking about the 10th prompt in the Books and Bites challenge, books told from a non-human perspective. This really opens up the prompt to a lot of different possibilities. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, animals, inanimate objects, deities, all kinds of weirdness. I think it's fun. And uh, a cockroach. <laughs> well, that's highly debatable, Carrie. <laughs> I would say monstrous vermin. <laughs> well, um, Perry, you are here because you have a great fondness for a particular book that may or may not be told from the point of view of a non-human perspective. <laughs> um, so much so that you even have a costume dedicated to it. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? This is true. Um, so I'll be covering the Metamorphosis by Franz Kafka. And um, Yes, I, I read the Metamorphosis um, in high school. It is often assigned um, in high school, and I think a lot of regret comes from that because kids tend to hate that. Um, I read it in, I believe, 1993 as a freshman, checked it out from the public library um, here in Jesmond County when it was on 2nd and Maple And I had no idea what this book was about. So I was super surprised when I started reading it. And in the first line of the book, um, when Gregor Samza woke up one morning from unsettling dreams, he found himself changed in his bed into a monstrous vermin. (laughs) So it is it is written in third person limited um, from the perspective of Gregor Samza, um, who is a monstrous vermin, often translated into monstrous insect, monstrous bug, and then lately everything is is cockroach oriented. (laughs) So um, my costume is a giant cockroach, I will say, but I am in the process of transforming it into something more ambiguous. Metamorphosizing it, so to speak. (laughs) So, So what kind of, why did this book stick with you? I think when I read it, well, first off, it was freshman English class, second term. And first term, I, you know, I was, I was coming into those formative years. I was 15 years old, stuck in Jesmond County, no offense, um, <laughs> not really liking my English class, hadn't found myself yet. Um, I, uh, I read this book and I mean, I think it, it was a surprise. I hadn't really encountered literature as much. We were reading um, Romeo and Juliet as a class. Maybe a separate piece had come around, which I could not relate to whatsoever. But I related intensely to this 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 character that Kafka creates. Which there is a lot of um, I, I I think it's it's highly misinterpreted um, Kafka's own feelings and his character. Um, but one thing. For sure, he is the, the character of Gregor Samza and Kafka himself. He's always questioning himself, always at odds with himself. And um, and I was I was I, I found that endearing. Um, also, he had a, a very tempestuous relationship with his father at the time, which 
you know, who can't relate to that as a teenager. And in fact, I would watch my dad and my sister fight at the dinner table most nights. It, it reminded me a lot of, of, of Kafka. Um, I, I, and I, of course, I, I think it's a little autobiographical. Um, in, in this story, Gregor does live with both of his parents and he is, uh, a salesman um, before he wakes up transformed into this monstrous vermin. Um, and he's kind of the breadwinner of the family. And um, yeah, I don't want to give too much away, but, uh, but the, you will end up hating the family intensely. <laughs> Michael and Adam have, did you have to read the metamorphosis in school? I know I did, but I don't No, I went to like small private school it, when we read literature, like classical literature, most of the time it was like excerpts of it that they had pre-approved. <laughs> Bob Jones University versions of things, you know. Um, I will say, you know, I think I kind of relate to fe- waking up every morning and feeling like monstrous vermin myself. <laughs> so it's off to a good start. Yeah. I just kind of want to not have a <laughs> responsive blank stare when someone says something is Kafka-esque. Okay, yeah. No so idea what that means. <laughs> <laughs> I do think that's an important um, important point. There are a lot of interpretations. Like, I think it, it gets a bureaucratic sort of thing. You go to the DMV, and there are too many lines, and then they're, they close before you get there. That's Kafka-esque. But um, one of his biographers in 1991 gave this awesome quote that I really think captures Kafka-esque, so I'm just going to read it, and I apologize, it's a little long. What I'm against is someone going to catch a bus and finding that all buses have stopped running and saying that's Kafka-esque. That's not. What's Kafka-esque is when you enter a surreal world in which all of your control patterns, all your plans, the whole way in which you have configured your own behavior begins to fall to pieces. When you find yourself against a force that does not lend itself to the way you perceive the world, you don't give up, you don't lie down and die. What you do is struggle against this with all of your equipment and whatever you have. But of course, you don't stand a chance. That's Kafkaesque. Wow, just rip my wig right off. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thank you, Perry, for um, enlightening us on um, Kafka and what is Kafka-esque and um, for giving us one more option for this challenge. Sure. And I will add one more thing. Um, You can get the a really good version of um, the metamorphosis for free um, through the Gutenberg project. So just look it up. Um, The translation is awesome. And we do have a copy available at the library in the general fiction aisle, um, and I recommend that translation as well. Great, thank you. My suggestion for a book from a non-human perspective is The Lesser Dead by Christopher Buhlman. This is told from the point of view of Joey Peacock, a forever 14-year-old vampire, as he recounts his experiences of living in New York in 1978, which was a very turbulent time. Crime was high, the city was in a fiscal crisis, and was standing on the precipice of the crack epidemic. 
Joey starts off by taking us into this world and describes how he became a vampire, being turned in 1933 by his former housemaid, Margaret, who takes him in and then moves down into the abandoned tunnels of the New York subway system. She eventually invites others to join, creating her own little vampire colony. Right off, you'll find that these aren't the sparkling vampires of Twilight. They're bloody and brutal. They have to drink blood to survive like most vampires, and while they don't aim to kill, mostly in an effort to keep the cops off their back, they won't hesitate if you anger them enough. But the real story begins when Joey spies a couple of young children vampires, which is pretty rare in the vampire world, on a subway, charming a man in the hopes of luring him away to feed. Joey tells Margaret what he saw, which sets off a chain of events that will leave a stake in the reader's heart. Pun intended. <laughs> I hate you. Uh, <laughs> it's not all blood and guts, though. The author does an amazing job of endearing you to Joey. He's a naive teen who can be charming and kind of goofy at times, completely obsessed with fashion and pop culture. The author constructs compelling supporting characters, and his detail of, of New York in 1978 really made the story come alive and completely engrossing. I also have to re- highly recommend listening to this as an audiobook, which you can download through the Libby app. It's read by the author, which you know can have varying results sometimes, but this one was so well done. The author knocks it out of the park with the Brooklyn accent, really becoming the character, adding to the whole experience. This novel is also more than your standard vampire fare. If you're an English major like me, there's a lot of subtext here that's just asking to be unpacked, like the parallels between vampirism and drug addiction that run throughout the novel. And the title, The Lesser Dead, brings up classism that's a major part of vampire life, especially for the ones that live underground. But if you're burned out in vampire stories and werewolves are more your thing, I would highly recommend Christopher Buellman's other book, Those Across the River, about a group of werewolves terrorizing a rural town in Depression-era Georgia. To pair with this bloody tale, I recommend The Vampire's Kiss Martini from the website The Spruce Eats. Super easy to make. It calls for three-fourth ounce of raspberry liqueur, one and a half ounces of vodka, one of one and a half ounces of sparkling wine and red sugar for the rim. No shaker needed. Just combine the ingredients in your glass. A perfect drink for anyone hosting a Halloween party this month. That sounds very sweet. Yeah, a little cloying. Um, <laughs> the only question that's really coming to mind and has been blazing in my head the whole time is... Are there disco vampires <laughs> in this book? Oh, yes. They go to oh, Studio yes. 54. Joey no, no, does. No, no. And it is. It's, it's, a, it's a fun little scene there. <laughs> nice. I hope y'all aren't sick of me talking about manga, because we're doing Dragon Ghost House Hunting, written by Kawo Tanuki and art by Koku Aya. Uh, This charming, high-fantasy farce follows Letty, a young pacifist dragon, while he searches for a new home after his father kicks him out for failing to guard his uh, flock's eggs from humans. 
really not sure if flock is the right word for a group of dragons, but I found nothing better online uh, that was official. (laughs) Uh, Quick warning, this book is rated for teens by the publisher, Seven Seas Entertainment, despite some nudity. Uh, However, the mythological figures represented, like harpies and mermaids, are typically portrayed as nude in art. So there's a precedent, in my opinion. It's not a big deal. But that's up to you. And if you're a teen, your parents. Um, <laughs> anyway, on to the story. Uh, Dragon Ghost House Hunting is chock full of nerd culture with asides about other manga and anime, high fantasy tropes and video game references. So folks who are yet to be fluent in nerd may miss out on some of the humor, but it'll still be a rewarding story anyway. Um, kicking off the series of unfortunate events, Letty seeks out the most notable the most notable craftsman in high fantasy, the dwarves. Little does he know, due to his sheltered life, that dragons are hunted as a source of high-quality crafting materials. Scales, bones, and all that jazz. Uh, so Letty, frozen with fear after learning the dwarves would rather harvest his innards than build him a house, is shamefully carted off to the dwarven city. Following some more high fantasy hijinks and mythological mummery, complete with count after count of near-death experiences, Letty is eventually rescued by a caring yet somewhat evil uh, elf named Diria, whose business card reads, First Class Architect, Registered Real Estate Broker, Demon Lord. <laughs> <laughs> The story uh, continues as Diria takes Letty on tours of dragon-sized homes with security measures like traps, all of which Letty triggers despite his best efforts, uh, and a haunted mansion shared with a wraith king and an army of squatter ghouls who, despite their best efforts to be his friend, succeed only in scaring the poor dragon nearly to death. Uh, therein is a lot of humor. While Letty is young, he is also a large, powerful creature that towers over many of his perceived threats. A lot of the hijinks follow the same kind of humor as a cartoon elephant being afraid of a mouse, and it works. Um, generally speaking, Letty could save himself from almost every situation he encounters by simply being the menacing, chaotic, evil dragon the world wants him to be. But all he really wants is to sit in front of a cozy fireplace, maybe do some knitting, pet a dog, or sip some tea. (laughs) The tired, defeated millennial in me identifies with his pacifist desire to just be home and comfortable instead of doing things he doesn't want to do in order to engage with systems that don't always make sense. Um, (laughs) So this is just the first volume in an ongoing series with the seventh volume coming out in November. Uh, Folks who might prefer to watch the story will be happy to hear there is also an anime. Um, And while Dragon Ghost House Hunting may not be everyone's cup of tea, I really enjoyed Letty's slapstick but heartfelt quest for home. And I hope y'all do too. (laughs) Um, Pair Dragon Ghost House Hunting with a hot bowl of Arkin the Cruel's flame-roasted halfling chili. According to Heroes Feast, the official D&D cookbook... This recipe was supposedly used by Archon, disciple of the five-headed dragon goddess Tiamat. Halflings will be relieved to hear the recipe was adapted for ground turkey. All the same, it's sure to be an excellent meal for the dragon lovers among us. (laughs) (laughs) That sounds like a cute one. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. I'm just, I'm looking at it, um, looking at your print copy and... 
the dragon, um, he does seem very, very different than how yeah. dragons are normally portrayed. <laughs> He's very timid and expressive and kind of a wiener. Um, but he, he knows it too. <laughs> The problem, like he runs into situations where, like, some harpies invite them to live up in their in their nest, their empty nest harpies, but he he thinks he can't fly, and he doesn't really try to, so he doesn't learn, and he doesn't think he can breathe fire. He just thinks of himself as a big lizard. So it's really just lack of confidence. Aww, bless yeah. his heart. <laughs> yeah, you really feel for him most of the time. first book is The Book Thief by Marcus Zusak, which was first published in 2005. So this award-winning novel, it could probably be considered a classic already. Its stylistic complexity and mature themes give The Book Thief crossover appeal. It was first published in Zusak's native Australia as an adult novel, but it was published here in the United States as a young adult novel. The book is narrated by Death, a sarcastic but often tender figure who carries souls away from their bodies when they die. He is, as he often points out, quite busy in World War II Germany, the novel's setting. Death tells the story of Liesel Memminger, a young girl who was sent to live with a foster family in 1939. On the way there, her younger brother dies on the train. Liesel's foster father, Hans, is a kind man who keeps Liesel company when she has nightmares about her brother. He helps her learn to read using the Grave Digger's Handbook, a book she found at her brother's grave. That first book begins a love affair with words and a compulsion to steal books, whether from a Nazi book burning or from the home library of the grieving mayor's wife. Liesel's foster father survived World War I because of the kind act of a fellow Jewish soldier. He agrees to hide the dead soldier's 24-year-old son, Max Vandenberg, in his basement. Max and Liesel form a strong bond over their nightmares and love of words. The first two-thirds of the novel focus on Liesel's life with her foster parents and friends, especially her best friend, Rudy Steiner. But the longer the war drags on, the more desperate things become for her family and, of course, for Max. The combination of a non-human narrator with a tendency toward black humor provides distance, allowing us to experience difficult things in a more palatable way, as Death himself points out. When a grieving mother hugs her son's dead body, Death notes, quote, from a distance, people observed. Such a thing was easier from far away, unquote. However, there's the risk that distance might distract readers from the tragedy of the Holocaust. Zuzak walks a fine line. He always contrasts the suffering of the Germans who live in Liesel's poor neighborhood with the greater suffering of Jewish people. But it's not always clear just how sarcastic Death's comments are meant to be, as when he says that, quote, no person was able to serve the Fuhrer as loyally, unquote, as himself. 
Still, this is an engrossing and lyrical book that explores, as Death himself puts it, both the, quote, beauty and brutality, unquote, of the human race. As you might expect from a novel that takes place during the Holocaust, be prepared to shed some tears. Wartime food in a poor household leaves much to be desired, and Liesel frequently writes about the thin, watery pea soup her foster mother makes. In the last episode of the podcast, I mentioned the Little Library Cookbook, 100 Recipes from Your Favorite Stories by Kate Young, and we now have it in our collection. Young suggests potato and leek soup with rye bread as a comforting meal to pair with the book thief. I made the soup, although I did depart from the recipe a bit to use what I already had around the house. It was indeed comforting and a nice dish to enjoy on these cooler nights of fall. I do enjoy some potato leek soup. I've made it before. Probably not the same recipe, but it was delicious. Yeah, it's hard to go wrong with potatoes and leeks. That's Mm -hmm. a good combination. Definitely sounds better than uh, her foster mother's pea soup. Yeah. 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 I haven't read the book Thief, but I do always appreciate a story that kind of personifies death in a relatable way. Like, he's not really a scary dude. Um, Though, up against the atrocities of World War II, it's a little less (laughs) relatable, I guess. But, uh, yeah. Well, I mean, and things were so bad that for a lot of people, I think during a time of war or, you know, time when you're being persecuted and tortured, um, death would be a welcome release. Fair, Um, yeah. And that's, um, you know, kind of how it's portrayed in in some portions of the book. But it is an interesting narrative choice. You know, why didn't he just choose to write about it from the girl's perspective, but instead he... Um, chose this um, very big amorphous idea to personify it and this was made into a movie I do not recommend it (laughs) it was not very good it was very bad so don't don't watch the movie of the book thief I mean how do you how do you portray death first off in a movie you know it was like a voiceover and um encompassing like seven years during a war in two hours yeah. <laughs> it's just that's a lot yeah. to pull off like yeah. i just keep picturing the big grim reaper from the muppets christmas carol wandering around for all this and <laughs> Also, highly recommend checking out *The Last House on Needless Street* by Catriona Ward. This book is currently on order, so I encourage you to get your holds placed ASAP. I might be cheating a little on this one. It is told from multiple perspectives, but one of the perspectives is a cat. Her name is Olivia, and she is quite religious and has fallen head over heels in love with a female cat that lives down the street. 
Not an easy book to categorize. Some want to call it thriller, suspense, or even horror, but it's not really any of those, but a little bit of each of those, if that makes sense. It completely blew me away. It's another one of those books you can't say too much about without spoiling the fantastic ending, but the basic premise is this. Ted lives in a house on the edge of the woods with his cat and daughter. Years ago, he was suspected in the disappearance of a young girl at the nearby lake, where many kids have disappeared over the years. Things in Ted's world is thrown upside down when the young girl's sister moves into the vacant house next door. Trust me, you have no idea where this book is heading, and the ending is mind-shattering. Make sure you don't flip around the back perusing the resources slash bibliography page if you don't want the ending spoiled. <laughs> okay. I'm, I'm intrigued. So, so did you say it went into the point of view of the cat? Yes. Okay. Yes. And, yeah. and how was that? Because I, I tried reading quite a few books that were from the point of view of animals for this challenge, and I did not finish any of them. Uh, it was pretty, it was pretty good. It was, uh, I thought it was well done. You know, she's, it was, her point of view can be kind of humorous and she's kind of a little bit uptight and, uh, loves, loves her, uh, loves Ted and wants to please him. But, you know, starts, it, I can't really say too much about it. <laughs> it's, you're wrote those books where if you give, if you say, you can't really say much about it, but. Yeah. No, my, my next book is kind of like that, too. <laughs> so my next book is Clara and the Sun by Kazuo Ishiguro. You may remember that I read Ishiguro's book, The Buried Giant, for an earlier challenge. His latest novel proves just how versatile a writer he is. Where the buried sun was steeped in the legends of King Arthur, Clara and the Sun is set in a futuristic world and narrated by an artificial friend who has been chosen as a companion by Josie, a 13-year-old girl with a serious but undisclosed illness. Like Michael, I don't want to give away too much plot because how it unfolds is such an integral part of the book. Clara is simultaneously observant and naive. Not only does her narration make the reader sympathize with an artificial being, it also allows the writer to withhold information. We learn about the world of the novel as Clara does, with complex human motivations slowly revealing themselves. And Clara's beliefs about the world around her, for example, she thinks that what she calls the sun's nourishment can heal Josie, provide moments of myth that rival Arthurian tales. I'm currently about three quarters of the way through the audiobook, and the tension and suspense are palpable. If I were, if I were reading the book, I'd probably have binged the whole thing by now, but my audio listening time is more limited. Narrator Sura Su voices Clara with a perfect blend of emotion and clipped Siri-esque diction. This book will have you questioning what it means to be human and what it means to love. I've heard a lot of good things about this book. I remember they did it for a book club a month or two ago. Mm -hmm. And uh, I remember she, uh, Charlotte, who did it, 
used to lead the book club. She loved it, so I saw that we had a book on CD, so I might grab that and try to listen to it. So, yeah, it's working. It works really well as an audiobook. Sometimes, um, like I had started to listen to an audiobook before that, and it was really good, but it kept changing voices and it kept changing time. And it was just, I couldn't keep track of it yeah. while I was driving. Um, and this one is more uh, straightforward narrative. Um, so it works really well. My only, my only small complaint is that I think the, the, the reader, um, audiobook narrator, uh, she has a British accent that sounds when she's doing the British accent, sounds a little more Australian than British. <laughs> um, but fortunately, it's kind of a minor character, so <laughs> it's not a huge part of the story. But but she voices the main character, um, the artificial friend um, voice really well. So, yeah. Um, and I think... Ishiguro also wrote Never Let Me Go, which also I think was about children and kind of had a sci-fi sci-fi feel. Um, so this book, I guess, I haven't, I haven't read that one, but I think it's a little more in line with that one. But from Remains of the Day to Arthurian Legends to Romance, wow. yeah, his range is incredible. Thanks for listening to the Books and Bites podcast. To submit your responses for this month's prompts, visit us at justpublib.org forward slash books hyphen bites. Our theme song is The Breakers by Scott Whitten from his album In Close Quarters with the Enemy. You can learn more about Scott and his music on his website at dorkburndesk.com.